You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at home and abroad. And I recently had the opportunity when I was in Dublin to drop into Collins Barracks, which if you do get the opportunity and you're in Ireland, well worth a visit. It would be Ireland's military museum, which uh, illustrates and tells the story of the Irish uh, going back hundreds of years and their military involvement all around the world. And in one of the areas, in one section there, there is an area that deals with Canada. And an event that many Canadians are familiar with and many are not. And an area that many Irish are familiar with and many are not uh, is um, when the Irish invaded Canada. And a recent book by Christopher Klein uh, tells that story. And Christopher is the author of four books, including Strong Boy and The Life and Times of John L. Sullivan, America's first sports hero. And he's a frequent contributor to History.com. And he has written for the Boston Globe and the New York Times. He's based down in Boston. First of all, Christopher, thanks a million for taking the time for coming along. And uh, we're going to talk about when the Irish invaded Canada, and we are not talking about just the immigrants. We're actually talking about a military campaign. That's right, yeah. So it's really one of the most fantastical missions ever undertaken in military history, which was uh, by a group known as the Fenian Brotherhood, who had come up with a plan to essentially hold Canada hostage and ransom it for... Ireland's independence, and they attacked Canada not just once, but five times between 1866 and 1871 in what are known as the Fenian Raids. And Chris, one of the jokes often when it comes to the establishment of an Irish organization is that the first item on the agenda is the split. <laughs> and <laughs> this yep, was not a unified. Here. This was not a unified. Uh, approach? No, no. In, in fact, there's even a split inside of the split. So, you know, you have these, this, this idea goes back to 1858, where in Ireland, James Stevens will uh, launch the Irish Republican Brotherhood, and in the United States, John O'Mahony will launch the Fenian Brotherhood, with the idea that with this first ever transatlantic revolutionary network that Fenians in the United States will raise money and arms and ship them to Ireland while Stevens will put together the army to have um, an invasion, uh, a revolution inside Ireland, another uh, uprising, uh, the first since the Young Ireland Rebellion in 1848. Uh, but the two are sort of end up parting ways and are or sort of blaming each other for the failure of a revolution never happened. So you have a split between Stevens and Omani at the top of the organization. And then right after the end of the Civil War in the United States, you have a split within John Omani's Fenian Brotherhood between those who want to carry on with the original plan of having a revolution in Ireland and those who want to change course and uh, want to invade Canada, which is British soil at the time, and it's so far easier for Americans to strike Canada than they would be to try to launch some revolution in Ireland. So you do have this organization that uh, over the years just continues to break and break apart into smaller sections and, of course, will really hamper its ability to 
achieve any sort of success from, from the plan that they want to. And ironically, while there was a split going on at what would be the organizational level, uh, the Fenian Brotherhood and the Fenian Army, as it was being established, or the Irish Army, was bringing together two sides that had been split previously in the American Civil War, where Irish had been on both sides, but came together for this common cause. Yes, that's right. So there's an Irish scholar named Damien Shields who's done tremendous research into the participation of Native Irish in the American Civil War. And he estimates that there's, there were about 200,000 native-born Irish who were fighting in the Civil War, which is a, an astronomical number. And, you know, the, most of them are fighting for the cause of the Union in, in the North. And the Irish who are enlisting really aren't doing it because they're eager to free the slaves. Most of them are just trying to, to get a paycheck. Uh, they don't think that the war is going to last too long. But for a real militant group of Fenians, they see the Civil War as a way to gain battlefield experience, weaponry experience that, that they can then use um, against the British. So after the war is over, you have you know members of the Fenian Brotherhood who fought on the Union side and fought on the Confederate side who will get together. And, um, you know, I was asked this the other day if I came across anything that, that saw that there was a difficulties in the Union Confederate members inside the Fenian army getting along, and I, and, and I didn't. Uh, so you, you will have in these Fenian invasions men who come from along the border, but you also will have Confederate soldiers who come as far away as New Orleans to join in these uh, invasions. And when you talk about that, what I found fascinating was that the convergence of the Irish, particularly uh, in Buffalo and then in, on the Vermont side, that huge numbers of people came from all over the United States by rail to these convergent points, to these meeting points. And um, at the same time, while this was going on, it was known uh, that it was happening and there seemed to be an ambivalence particularly on the Canadian side of the border that there was any threat. Right, so what really happened is that late 1865, early 1866, the Fenian Brotherhood really is probably at the peak of its power in the months after the Civil War and really has been pretty successful in recruiting members from mill cities in New England, mining towns in Appalachia, and getting potential recruits for uh, this idea of invading Canada. Now, although they were, they were members were uh, banned from receiving sacraments in the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church uh, considered the Fenian Brotherhood to be a secret organization, the irony is the Fenian Brotherhood could not keep the secret at all. And they were easily infiltrated by spies from Canada, from Britain, even from the United States. So it was pretty known in Canada that uh, what the what the movements were of the Fenian Brotherhood in early 1866, and they believed that uh, St. Patrick's Day, 1866, was going to be the day of the invasion. Uh, so they canceled the St. Patrick's Day parades in Montreal and Ottawa and Toronto. They called out the militia, and nothing happened. So when the Fenians actually do invade Canada on June 1st, 1866, there are no 
defense, Canadian defense forces, uh, ready to greet them on the other side of the border because it was sort of like the butt with the boy who cried wolf. You know, people were not going to believe that the Fenians were going to invade until they actually did. And that was sort of the attitude of the Canadian government. You know, we've already spent all this money and, and effort in terms of calling out the militia back in March where, you know, we'll wait and see if they cross over, then we'll then we'll mobilize at, at that time. So it is remarkable that the, the, the border is undefended when the Fenians do invade. And they and once they do in June of eighteen sixty six, crossing from Buffalo into Ontario, there is uh by the train loads you have Irish Americans who are pouring into Buffalo and some of the other border towns in upstate New York ready to join the invasion because they were holding back as, as well. You know, they didn't think that this was necessarily going to happen. So the force that crosses into Ontario has only about 800 men uh, in June of 1866. But once Irish Americans see that this is actually happening, then um, – they open up recruiting stations in New York City and Boston, and men will sign up and get on the train and head to the battlefront uh, on these overnight trains. What I also found fascinating was that the way that the Fenians were armed was primarily from ex-U.S. military uh, arms, the surplus arms that were sold off after the Civil War. Yeah, this is what was probably the most surprising thing to me in doing the research is that the uh, United States government basically turned a blind eye to what the Fenians were planning on doing. And the invasion of Canada was a violation of American neutrality laws because it's against the law for any private citizens to undertake wars and invasions of countries with which the United States was at peace, and at that time Great Britain and the United States were, uh, had peaceful relations. But uh, so, so the Americans knew what the Fenians were up to, and there's even an account that the Fenians have, and they're the only people that we have an account from, so we have to take that into consideration. But there's a meeting in the White House in the fall of 1865 in which the Fenians say that they laid out to President Andrew Johnson, their plan of invading Canada, and Johnson basically told them in so many words that he wouldn't stand in their way. He wouldn't actually support them, but he wouldn't stand in their way. And part of what they did was, after the Civil War, you did have all these weapons uh, that were put up for auction, and the Fenian Brotherhood was one of the main purchasers of them. They'd buy these weapons, and then they would ship them um, on trains up to members along the border who would smuggle them away in their basements and in their warehouses to keep until the day of the invasion when they uh, brought them out. Because uh, the United States and Great Britain were really at their lowest ebb since the Redcoats torched the White House in the War of 1812 because it was in British ports that Confederate warships were being built. And at the conclusion of the war, the United States wanted Great Britain to pay reparations for the damages, some leverage on the British to, to repay these, uh, or to pay these reparations that they wanted at the end of the Civil War. Now, the other thing, I suppose, that is um, 
again, those who would have done any research or would have knowledge is, as I understand it, this is probably the only battle fought on Canadian soil that the Canadians lost or didn't win. Yeah, that I'm not as familiar with because I mean I certainly know we we know that there were battles and this whole this whole idea of invading Canada is American as fireworks on the Fourth of July for so the first 100 years of of American history. So there's of course the terrible defeat for the Continental Army on New Year's Eve outside Quebec City. It's the first place the Continental Army goes even before. United States declared its independence to go due north. And then you have these battles that occurred during the war of 1812, and there's some American support during the Patriot War in 1837, 1838. But um, this certainly is uh, its not the only. It's, it's the last time that, that such a defeat took place on Canadian soil. I think it's the last invasion that, that did take place on Canadian soil, if I've got that right, too. Right. Now, the other um, aspect of this, of course, is that it's seen as it was a turning point uh, in Canadian history because for a few reasons, first of all, as I understand, the Venians anticipated, and this would have been in the second phase or in the, after the uh, Ridgeway where they came up from St. Albans into uh, Quebec, and they anticipated they would get support from the Irish and also from the French who, because of a common enemy as such being the British, would have obtained support from both the Irish and the, the French in Quebec, in Quebec who were not so receptive. But as a result of this also, that it allowed Thomas Darcy McGee to further uh, work towards and achieve confederation in Canada in 1867. Yes, so you have this idea that's baked into the war plan uh, who I should mention, the, the, the war plan is devised by General Thomas William Sweeney, who was a Civil War veteran, a general who had fought in the Union Army for 20 years. So in addition to those weapons that were being used from the, the Civil War, the Fenians also had um, quite high up in their organization generals who had fought in the Civil War. And baked into the, into the plan is that once they crossed the border, the Fenians are going to be greeted as liberators. Right? This is just something that goes way back into American military history. It's still with us to the present day. During the War of 1812, Thomas Jefferson said that the taking of Canada would be a mere matter of marching. And there's this expectation that Canadians in general would want to welcome any American invaders because Americans just suspect that the Canadians would want to cast off British rule, and certainly the Fenians believed that the Irish Canadians uh, wanted to do the same as well. And it was a fundamental misreading of the support that this uh, invasion would have had among the Irish in Canada, and same with the French speakers in Canada, too. This was the idea in the War of 1812 as well, that once Americans crossed over, they'd get the support of all the French speakers in Canada, and it just it just wasn't the case. And you are correct in that once the, after the in, in the wake of the Battle of Ridgeway, and also there was a small invasion that was tried of Campobello Island uh, between Maine and uh, on the border between Maine and New Brunswick uh, in April of 1866, a couple of weeks before the Battle of Ridgeway. 
um, a failed invasion that attempted that happened there. That in the wake of that failed invasion on Campbell Island, there really was a surge of support for pro-Confederation forces in Nova Scotia and in New Brunswick, and after the Battle of Ridgeway and the blood that shed there as well, does give this impetus for Confederation that's going to happen, uh, what, 13 months after the, the Battle of Ridgeway. And it's, it's something that Thomas Darcy McGee uh, really points to as well. And, you know, speaking from the unique position where he was a member of that Young Ireland Rebellion in 1848 and had been one of the foremost enemies of the Crown, is one who then is, uh, you know, from his knowledge of being inside the organization, sort of a powerful speaker for Confederation then in 1867. So, um, when it comes to something like this, this um, given the amount of fluidity that would have been happening, aside from the meetings in the White House and a few other, or what would have been meetings at high level, where were you able to draw for sources that, uh, well, like, was this reasonably well documented, or were you having to pull what was documented and extrapolate some of it from that? So the research archives are, are pretty robust on this because you, for, for one reason, because the Fedians were so easily infiltrated by uh, British and Canadian spies, there's a lot of the documentation and orders that they were sending around that ended up in uh, governmental hands. So in the aftermath of these, uh, particularly after the Battle of Ridgeway and uh, to a lesser extent uh, after the Campobello Island fiasco, there were these parliamentary inquiries into uh, the Fenian Brotherhood and you get a lot of these documents that were preserved and put into the parliamentary record that were published in the late 1860s, early 1870s. So you, you have a lot of those missives that were coming right from the Fenian Brotherhood. Uh, there are a lot of the communications among the Fenian leaders that the letters that they were sending among each other that were preserved and in archives in Philadelphia and in Washington, D.C. So, you know, we do have a pretty good record of what was going on among the leadership. I wish the record was a little bit more fuller among the rank and file, uh, the, the, the men who were uh, undertaking these invasions. Uh, you know, we, I was able to find a, a few men who had sort of their firsthand accounts that, that were written down. I wish that was a little bit richer, but uh, among the leadership, we've got a really good idea of what was going on uh, during this time period. Well, Christopher, I think we'll uh, wrap up here because I want to thank you. It's been fascinating talking to you. And I also want to make sure to, to point out that, first of all, uh, as somebody who was not a great, uh, wasn't, I won't say a great lover of, but was never inspired by history when I was at school, um, your writing style has made this very readable. 
and has made it in very engaging uh, and certainly coming to history I would say late in life uh, I found that being able to work um, sit down and read this and learn from it and absorb it was wonderful and you've done a fantastic job in bringing to life what is a, an aspect of both Canadian and Irish and American history that many people would not be familiar with. Thank you so much, Austin. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And we have been chatting with Christopher Klein, and Christopher is the author of uh, the book that has been recently published, When the Irish Invaded Canada, and it is published by Adobe and uh, WB Random House, I think, and uh, you can get it where all good books can be got. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you.